Hi, my name is Peter Kaiser, and I want to welcome you to this episode of the Retinal Physician Podcast. And I'm joined today by one of my close friends, Tara Kassan from Associated Retinal Consultants. This podcast is brought to you by Genentech Ophthalmology. Together with the ophthalmology community, Genentech is committed to changing how we address the leading causes of vision loss for patients. To learn more, visit ophthalmologyvision.com. Welcome, Tarek, to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk about something that is vexing for all of us. I mean, primary macular holes, success rate up around 97 98%. But these are your standard, relatively easy to close macular holes. Um, what we're going to talk about today is some of the tips and tricks of closing complicated macular holes. And I'm going to start with the, that topic, Tarek. What would you consider a complicated macular hole? Well, I think it's a good question. I think there are different types of complicated macular holes. Certainly, the first determination, I think, is to decide, well, to know whether it's a primary repair that you would be attempting on a macular hole or if it's a recurrent macular hole or if it's a failed prior macular hole. So I think that a complicated macular hole that's never had surgery, I think, falls largely into the categories of that's extremely large, maybe 750 microns or larger in size, or a myopic macular hole with a staphyloma and maybe a, an associated retinal detachment, posterior pole detachment. Uh, that would be sort of the things that you sort of in initially think of when you think of a complicated hole that's never been operated on before. And then there are the whole group of other eyes that have had prior surgery, either ones that have had a successful primary repair at some point in the past and reopened, which is a, not, a, not a huge number of patients, maybe a couple, 2 to 3% probably currently. And then those holes that had prior surgery and never closed. Either they were too big to be operated on initially or um, they developed epithelial membrane tissue or something else along the way caused them to reopen. So I think complicated holes, really, it's a broad spectrum depending on, on those factors. Recurrent holes are obviously very upsetting when they occur uh, in your own setting, in your own practice. Uh, but many of us, including yourself and I, get a lot of the ones from other practices where, where it's really hard to know what was done at that first surgery. You're, 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 you're going in blind, so to speak. What are some of the tips uh, and tricks that you can give our listeners when you're going in on a, on a recurrent macular hole, let's say from, from another practice where you don't exactly know what's going on until you get in the eye? Well, I think the most important thing when you're dealing with a recurrent hole that is first to consider its size and in the end to know whether or not they did probably the most important failed step uh, in these cases would be whether they had a complete uh, peeling of the internal limiting membrane, particularly around the edges of the hole itself. So, you know, when you go in, you try to get as good of a history as you can about the prior surgical repair and maybe something about what the macular hole looked like before it was done the first time. And then when you're intraoperatively uh, studying your options, you want to assess whether or not there's any ILM remaining around the margin of the hole. 
is I, I, we published a series a few years ago looking at the surgical repair of recurrent macular holes that existed from our own practice. So we had a pretty good idea of the practice patterns of the people in our group who had done the primary repair, and we found only a handful of, of holes that reopened, typically many months down in their primary surgical closure. And in all of these cases, this series was done at a time where the only intervention that we did was to go in and scratch around, say, with a, a pick or an MBR blade around the margin of the hole and finding, in almost every case, some remnant of internal limiting membrane around the lip of the macular hole. And in a few cases, there was some mild epiretinal membrane tissue that had grown there. So you're still looking for traction and tissue. And, and that, that's the first thing you have to consider when you're going in blind, not knowing what was done before. Because if the hole is, you know, 300 microns, 400, and is recurrent, they typically close pretty well. So some of these cases, you get in there, and it, it was a pretty good surgeon, and, and you look in, and you have maybe a, a two-disc diameter area around the hole that's actually been peeled. You, you stain stain with your stain of choice. I, I personally like to use ICG. And you look in there, and you have this big donut that's missing of ILM. You know, what are some of the things that, that you may be able to do in that situation? Because obviously the ILM is, is off the hole, but, but there's a recurrent hole. How, how do you close those? Right. So I think if it's small enough and you are pretty sure you don't have an annulus of that ILM tissue at the sort of inner ring of the hole, then I think we start looking towards trying to put something into the hole. And, of course, the most common thing is ILM that, in this case that you described, would have to be retrieved from some external place. So... It would be a sort of an ILM a transplant rather than a, a flap, per se. But you could, if you have a, an area in the macula you can successfully retrieve ILM from, or even sometimes out beyond the arcade vessels, you can try to stuff some ILM in the hole to get it to close. And I think that that's probably a, a go-to procedure for a recurrent hole that's maybe in the, you know, 300 to 600, uh, 700 micron range, and the island's already been peeled from the hole. So I was going to say, well, the other approach at this point, too, though, can be one of the newer approaches, which I've done with some success when there's not a great amount of, you know, the ILM transplant tech can be a little bit fussy. And in the cases where you don't really want to go through that, but you're not quite at the point where you want to do something even more drastic, like stick something in the hole that may be permanent and sort of serve as a bridge, is the technique that's been described by uh, Carson Meyer and, and several others of uh, trying to create a macular detachment. I think these types of holes that you're describing now are good for that, where you'll create a submacular bled uh, in a few spots to mobilize that macular tissue and then do a fluid gas exchange and get that hole to close by simply creating enough um, uh, area, freed up surface area at the hole margin to close. And I think those types of holes that you're describing now do well with, with that technique as well. Uh, something short of uh, dealing with holes that may be 1,500 microns in size or, or, or the like. Yeah, those 1,500 ones are definitely d difficult, and we'll talk a little bit about those in a, in a moment.
What do you think if you're talking to a patient with one of these recurrent holes, what do you, what do you kind of quote them as, as, as your chance of closing it? Well, that's a good question and not an easy one. I, I think, again, it depends on so many ancillary factors. If it's just a, a failed primary hole and it's, you know, 400 microns, 300 microns in size, um, I tell them that the chances of being able to reclose it again are probably, and this this is really from, from the, the paper that we wrote, so a little easier because it was sort of internally generated patients, but I still think that success rate can be upwards of 80 or 90 percent, um, even higher if the holes are still fairly small and you're able to successfully mobilize either scar tissue from around the hole or the macular tissue itself. And then I think as the holes get larger and larger in size, you have to ratchet that number down bit by bit, and it depends on what other ancillary uh, complicating factors you have. Even the really big holes, which we can talk about too as well, they still have a pretty high success rate of closing the hole to getting a good-looking or at least acceptable anatomic OCT appearance of a closed hole that I would say is, is still in the order of 60 to 70% if you took all comers, uh, even the huge ones. But it's a higher percentage in the smaller holes. Yeah, I would agree fully. Let's switch gears now and, and talk about, you know, primary holes, but these are the large holes, you know, which by definition is more than 400 microns. But as you said, sometimes we see these up, up around 1,000 or even greater uh, in terms of the, the distance between the, the aperture of the hole edges. And, and we know that the success rate in these holes are somewhere around the 75% range. That's usually what I, what I quote to my patients. Um, but these are de novo holes. So these are patients you're taking in the OR for the first time. What are some of the techniques that you use in these patients? Yeah, when you get really, really large holes like that, and it's a primary case, I think you, there is still, um, you, I think you, you still need to do the, the standard initial aspects of the surgery with a great vitrectomy, pull up the blister highly completely, uh, certainly from the blister pull and out to the you know, vitreous base at least, and then do an ILM peel. When they're up around as big as you said, I think that the success rate of an ILM flap is not terribly high. So I would do a more complete ILM peel, uh, but then think about putting something larger, whether it be amniotic uh, graft, uh, amniotic tissue graft, or even an autologous retinal transplant, which I have done. Um, my partner, Tamara Mahmoud, has popularized that technique, and there's been a recent paper, as you know, that reported the world's experience using autologous retinal transplants to close these giant holes with a great deal of success and a fair amount of uh, success uh, with some visual improvement and some relief of the scotoma. So when they're really large, I think you have to put something in the hole to get those success rates higher than they've ever been. We've never had uh, success rates that have been, uh, as they have been described with sticking something in the hole to create that bridge of tissue. Yeah, and that and that surgery is, is beautiful to watch, but uh, you know, Tamer, yourself, others, amazing surgeons. What are some of the tricks if someone were, were to try and do this autologous patch graft? 
You know, it's certainly something that is, I think, daunting to think about, and it is one of those procedures that's different enough that you want to do a couple or three before you're feeling comfortable with it. And admittedly, I have not done a million of them either. I'm fortunate to have Tamara in the group who who does more. But um, there are a couple of important things. When you get past the step of peeling the ILM and you've identified sort of what you want to do, you, you want to pick uh, tissue that you're going to transplant, the graft spot, you, to be easily accessible. So I like to go uh, not any further out than the mid-equator, an area that I'm not as concerned about nasal versus temporal as some might be, but it has to be something that you can easily manipulate depending on patient's nose and the position of their forehead, and et cetera. But you want to have good ability to manipulate that tissue and uh, I like to apply laser to demarcate the outer rim of where I'm going to take that patch graft from because I think diathermy does destroy the tissue a little bit and it tends to make the edges of that graft sort of ratty. So I like to put in a ring of laser and then cut within that ring of laser, sort of at the inner edge of that ring of laser to remove the graft. And that graft, I think you want to be careful to take something that is slightly larger than the macular hole itself, something that in the order of 20 to 30% larger than the macular hole itself, because you are going to lay the graft over the macular hole and, and, and very gently, I like to push a little bit along the margins of that graft. It's, it's, you're not really stuffing it entirely into the hole, but you are some approximating something like that the most important trick uh, trick of all though and tip of all is to do it under perfluorocarbon liquid the first one i ever did i tried to do it under fluid and i spent 35 40 minutes chasing this piece of tissue around the eye and just putting it in there i don't even know what shape the tissue was in by that point but if you do it if you fill up the eye with perfluorocarbon liquid before cutting the graft out and you just slide it over, it slides very easily, and you can put it exactly where you want. And then if you do a little bit of tucking of the edges into the hole, I've been successful enough to do a fluid gas exchange, and that's held the uh, graft in place. I know that some uh, have even left the perfluorocarbon liquid in there for a couple of weeks to make sure that the graft stays in place, and then they go back and remove the liquid, uh, perfluorocarbon liquid later. Yeah, I think that's an important point because uh, in one of my first tries on this, I was like, I don't understand why people put PFO and fill the eye. And, and so I had, you know, probably about a one-third bubble in there, you know, covering up my, my donor site, covering up the hole, of course. But as I pulled the donor uh, to the hole, it, it literally – floated to the surface of the PFO. And I'm like, how does retina float on, on PFO? And then, right. and only after I, I filled the eye did I was I able to actually get it down to, to the retinal surface. So so live right. and learn, I say. Um, oh, well, this, Tarek, this is definitely one of those surgeries, yeah. Yeah, this this is not the one where you where you you do it on a one eyed patient as your first as your first case. It, it definitely has a learning curve to it, but but when it works, it works uh, remarkably well. In, in the last yeah. minute or so, I wanted to ask you about uh, macular holes in the high myo because this is certainly 
uh, difficult for many reasons. The instruments uh, may not be long enough. Uh, obviously, the atrophic RPE makes things a little more difficult in terms of contrast, and, and many of these patients have staphylomas. Um, what are some of the things that you do to, to make uh, macular hole surgery in these high myopes easier? Yeah, well, I think you certainly described the, a super situation in general, and I think that the two most common things that one has problems with you also laid out. I, for me, the, the worst is, the, is often the lack of contrast to aid your peeling in the posterior pole. So, yeah, the instruments aren't long enough, so you're, you're holding the, the handles or the even the tubing sometimes if you're using a soft tip and you're at the very end. And at the same time, you're trying to peel tissue that you have no uh, background contrast to to help you. What's made it really easiest for me, I think, is to use a variety of stains. And, and I actually also prefer using ICG when I uh, to stain the internal limb membrane. But I also like to use triamcinolone in these cases in particular. Now, I don't, I'm not a big fan of triamcinolone for uh, idiopathic macular holes or most macular holes. But using a dilute mixture of triamcinolone uh, and then using it with ICG. You get this strange greenish-white, uh, greenish crystalline white mix in there that I have found helps me see a little bit better as I'm trying to feel tissue around the, in the posterior pole in these eyes. They are pretty, they, I would admittedly though, I think they're very challenging cases. You often don't get a beautiful sheet of ILM that you peel up like you do in an idiopathic hole. But uh, I think that really the biggest trick for me is, is the use of staining and restaining and the combination of using uh, triamcinolone as part of my mix in that case in particular. Well, this has been a, a very interesting discussion. I hope our listeners really enjoyed it. Uh, I want to thank Tarek Hassan for all these pointers and look forward to welcoming you all back to the next Retinal Physician podcast. Thank you, Peter. This podcast is supported by Genentech Ophthalmology. Genentech continues to work with the ophthalmology community to advance the understanding of serious eye disease, uncover new therapeutic options, and transform patient care. Learn how at ophthalmologyvision.com.